Last week we began a summer series on the first three chapters of Revelation, and we looked at Revelation chapter 1 last week, and we're going to be in the next seven weeks going to be looking at the seven letters to the churches. So we're in Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be reading chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I was reading a book this uh, last week uh, by a man who lives out in California. And he wrote this about West Coast churches. He said, West Coast churches face a variety of challenges. Their environment is anything but friendly to vibrant Christian faith. Some churches located in self-sufficient, affluent communities, are tempted to pursue personal peace and comfortable lifestyle, relying on their financial resources for security. Others are stained by the scandal of sexual immorality. Some are stigmatized by their community as aloof and intolerant of other viewpoints. After all, the populace and politicians of the West Coast, finding it expedient to cultivate the favor of power brokers in the distant capital, show their loyalty to the system through a civil religion unencumbered by personal convictions. Some churches are experts in doctrinal precision, but amid the theological wars, they have lost the capacity to care for hurting people. Others are unclear about where to draw the line that defines the essentials of the gospel as they adapt their message to the culture in order to reach out or to fit in with non-Christians. Some churches are image, all image and no reality, lacking spiritual vitality, despite an impressive array of activities. Others are a tiny minority struggling to hold on in the midst of a community that ignores or despises them. These West Coast churches sound stereotypically 21st century Californian, don't they? In fact, however, this is a sketch of the situation, strengths, and weaknesses of the West Coast churches in Asia Minor, in the first century, to which Jesus addressed his revelation through John. So, sound familiar? I guess we could probably say that about East Coast churches as well. And if we are careful to read these seven letters to the seven churches, we will find some messages not only to West Coast churches and to East Coast churches, but also to Florida Coast Church, because these letters were designed, as we saw last week, They were designed for specific historical situations, but they're here for the benefit of the church in all ages. 
And so we're going to be looking at these, and we have a great advantage as a church. We're a new church. We don't have a long history. And so we have the advantage of hearing these words early on and making early adjustments if we need to so that we don't head down a wrong path but continue to do the things that we ought to be doing. Now let's um, look at how these letters are set up because all of them are set up basically the same and you have some notes that were available back in the back and uh, you, you here you see five different different sections of these. There's, there are introductory statements from the Lord and these always go the same. Uh, They say, to the angel of the church in, and then fill in the blank. To the angel of the church in, and then fill in the blank. And then it always says, write, write, uh, not R-I-G-H-T, but W-R-I-T-E, write, down. And then it says, thus says, thus says. Now that should stand out if you've read anything of the Old Testament, because that's a formula that comes from the Old Testament, and we find that in prophecy. And here, this is picking up that Old Testament prophetic introduction, thus says. And usually in the Old Testament, it's, or invariably in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. And so this, uh, this gives uh, the, the authority here, the Lord's authority. And then, in this introductory statement, we have a description of Jesus. And this description of Jesus comes out of chapter 1. And you recall last week that we did not dig into the details of the vision of Jesus And we didn't dig into the details because we're going to be seeing those details come out in these seven letters. And uh, after the description of Jesus, then we have the second part, which is Jesus' words about the condition of the church. He comments about the condition of the church, and he always introduces his comments with the, the words, I know, I know. And then he talks about the situation in the church. And in that I know section, he talks about what's good about the church, And what's bad about the church? Now, in some cases, there's nothing good, and in some cases, there's nothing bad. But usually, there's something good and something bad, and he comments on the conditions of the church. And then there is a call to repentance or a call to faithfulness, depending on the situation of the church. And then, there is a closing line, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, that is always the same except it appears either second to last or last. So in the, in the first uh, three letters, it's second to last, and then the last four letters, it's the very last thing. And there's always a promise as well. A promise to the one who overcomes, a promise to the one who conquers, a promise to the one who perseveres. So that we will see this, this structure in with some a little bit of change, but we will see this structure in all of the letters. So here, let's look at this first one. You see how it starts out. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Then we see, I know. But let's look at this description first. It says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. From where does that come? Well, we look back one chapter, and we see this vision that John had. And if you look at verses 12 and 13 of the of chapter 1, John heard somebody, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the, of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, golden sash, and then goes on the description of this one like the son of man. Then if you go down and look at verse 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. 
and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, etc. So he's picking up these two elements. The seven golden lampstands, and this Son of Man is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and in his right hand he has these seven stars. And then helpfully, in verse 20, Jesus interpreted these elements for us. It says in verse 20 of chapter 1, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So uh, we saw that there's some difficulty with the angels. Uh, exactly who are these angels of the seven churches? We think there's something like guardian angels. There are other interpretations. But when he directs a message to the angel of the church, he's directing a message to the church. So there's an identification between the angel and the church. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, where is Jesus in this vision? He's in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. And so then when he gets to this next section, um, the I know section... He's not basing it on hearsay, because where does he live? He lives in the midst of the churches. He is there with them, and so he can say, I know. He has an accurate view of what's going on in the churches. And when he describes the condition of the church, he says, I know. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about what the situation was in Ephesus. How did the church get to Ephesus? Ephesus was a coastal city. It was a very important city. In fact, it was the most important city of Western Asia Minor. And Asia Minor now is is Turkey. So this is on the coast. And it was a strategic city because it was connected to the west by sea. It was a port city. And it was connected to the east by the Roman roads. So if, if something was going through from east to west, it went through Ephesus. And it, it made it a very important city. It made it a center of commerce, and it was also an important city because it had the temple to the goddess Artemis, who was also called Diana. And this was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a center of worship. It was a center of learning. It was a center of commerce. It was a center also of of occult arts, a dark magic type arts. And... Um, it was well-connected, prosperous, well-educated, religiously proud. It was a hard place to be a Christian. It was a very hard place to be a Christian. Now, how did the church get started there? If you go back to Acts chapter 18, and I'd recommend that you go back to fill in all the blanks, Acts 18 to 20, we have uh, three visits by Paul to the church in Ephesus. There was the first visit in chapter 18, where he was there just briefly, just briefly. But after him, Apollos, another eloquent preacher, and then two of Paul's companions, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they were there. So it looks like Paul, Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, they were ministering there. And then on Paul's next journey, he stayed there uncharacteristically. He stayed there in this, this most important city. He stayed there for more than two years. He rounds it off when he talks about it three years when he talks to the, uh, the elders later, he talks about three years there. Why did he stay there? Because normally he was always pressing forward to go to a new place. But Paul stayed there for three years because of the importance of that city. And it says that uh, he used that as his base of operations to evangelize all of the province of Asia. Now, not the whole what we call continent of Asia, but the the province, the Roman province of Asia, which was uh, that whole area. So he was there for those three years, uh, and he apparently would have spent some more time there 
but a riot broke out. A riot broke out. Do you remember the temple? Well, have you ever gone to a place where there is a famous cathedral um, um, or some, uh, the Vatican or you've gone to a, a place where there's a, uh, in South America or Latin America, maybe a temple or a pyramid? Well, lots of industry grows up around that. Lots of trinket sellers grow up around religious sites, uh, pilgrim sites. And that's what happened. And they made uh, quite a profit selling images of the goddess Diana or Artemis. And the, uh, the metal workers were making quite a profit. But the gospel was reaching so many people that it was denting their business. Because the Christians were no longer buying these, these trinkets, these, these images, these <coughs> idols. And so there was an uproar by these metal workers against the Christians. And they said, Paul... Better for you to, to move on. And so he did. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if in our area here in Broward County, up in uh, Palm Beach County, if, uh, if the, the strip joints and the drug dealers um, started protesting because nobody wanted to go anymore, the, the psychics were, were going out of business because... Because nobody wanted to consult them anymore because there were so many Christians that it was making a dent in their business. That's the kind of impact the gospel was having in Ephesus. Now, Paul passed by one more time, but he didn't go into the city. And that was in chapter 20. And it's a, it's a fascinating visit that Paul made because what he did is he gathered the elders, the presbyters of the church, the leaders of the church, and he, he spoke to them. And what he said to them was this. Well, let's look at it. If we go back to Acts chapter 20, because this is pertinent to what we're going to see of Jesus' words to the folks in Ephesus. If you look at Acts chapter 20, it's on page 1030 in the Bibles that are available to you. Acts 20, 28 to 30. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he's preparing for them. Their situation in Ephesus, you can see how this would happen with this, uh, this uh, pagan religious fervor and a, a center of ideas and education. He says, be careful. Don't stray from the truth. Watch yourselves and watch all the flock. Then, it's interesting that sometime later, Paul wrote to Timothy. And um, in the first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So you see the danger there. There's a constant danger of false ideas coming in and infiltrating the church. Paul warned them. Paul left Timothy there to take care of it. Now there is, that's just, that's that, up to this we, we have biblical history. There is also church tradition that says that eventually the Apostle John ministered in Ephesus. And some people put two and two together because Jesus on the cross commended his mother, Mary, 
to John to take care of. And so uh, there is a, a church tradition that Mary went with John and that's where, where she lived with him. If uh, you go to Ephesus now, you will find ruins of the cathedral dedicated to John, and you also find the Church of Mary, testifying to these traditions. We don't know how how accurate these are. But we do have a letter from about 20 years after Revelation was written by a man named Ignatius. And Ignatius was on his way to Rome to be martyred. And he was writing letters to the churches on his way to Rome. And he was writing letters asking them not to intervene on his behalf. Because he didn't want anybody to take that privilege away from him. And so he wrote the church in Ephesus. And in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he praised them for resisting false doctrine. So 20 years after this, he praised them for resisting false doctrine. They were in a place where it was, it was uh, thriving false doctrine, but they resisted. Now, let's go back to the text. And taking that, that historical information, let's put it back, let's look at the text again. Jesus says, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then if you look down at verse 6, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about those, but that was a, a, a group teaching false doctrine. They're mentioned in another letter later. We don't know much about them, but obviously they were teaching false doctrine, and he commends the church in Ephesus. Why? Because even in their, their very difficult religious situation, they were holding firm. He said, good job. You, you hate false doctrine. You won't let it get into the church. You're holding the line. You're doing a great job. And he, there's a word play here, interesting, uh, two word plays actually. There's a word play on toil. He says, I know your toil. And then later he says, you have not grown weary. It's hard to bring out in English, but those two are two related words. So you have toiled, but you haven't become toiled. And then also, there's another word play on bear. Uh, look at verse 2. It says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. And look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. So they were astute. They knew what not to bear and they knew how to bear up. So he commends them. And um, he, um, he commends them because this was no small feat in a pluralistic world. And it's no small feat for churches today either to maintain the truth. Uh, of Scripture and of the Gospel. It's not an easy thing to do when there are pressures both from within and from without to modify, to tone it down here or there, to make it apparently more acceptable to our environment. But they held firm. Okay, that's the good part. Um, Although they were good at hating falsehood and hating wickedness, they had let something slip. And they had let something essential slip. And this is what he says in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So they were very astute. 
very doctrinaire, very orthodox, um, very faithful, but they'd let their love slip. Now, there is some debate among the, the scholars about, is it their love for God, or is it their love for others, or for each other? In the context, in the context, it is probably their love for others, their love for neighbor that they left slip. Because they were, they were fervent for the, the true faith. And so in that sense, their, their devotion to God had not slipped. However, we really can't divide these two, can we? And particularly in the writings of John, in the writings of John, these two things are always held together. Truth and love. Love and truth. If you go back just a few books to 1 John chapter 4 on page 1125, 1 John chapter 4, you hear John say this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see how the argument goes? The argument goes like this. It's not... Such a big deal that we should love God. That is normal. That's not what we should boast about. We should love God, of course, and we should not boast about the fact that we love God. We should be amazed by the fact that He first loved us. And that's, that's, that's the, the birth of our love in the first place. It's not that we loved God. We didn't start the relationship by loving God. He started the relationship by loving us. And how did He show His love? Here John says, He showed His love by sending His Son to be a propitiation, a technical word that means a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. So God, He took our sin, He took God's wrath for us, that we may not bear that. That's how He showed His love for us. And then, in response, we love God. But then the final line is, if therefore God so loved us, and if we profess that love to God in return, we also ought to love one another. You can't separate these things. You can't say, I love God, but I don't love my neighbor. And that's what John is constantly hammering in his writings. But also in John's writings, we find this, this uh, characteristic of truth and love, truth and love. Second John, Second John, just one over, one chapter later from First John, or one book later on page 1126, Listen to how John writes this little letter. He says, uh, verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, truth and love. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both God the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Do you you see the the two emphases here? He's thundering against uh, against, uh, false doctrine and those who, who promote it. He says, don't even greet them. Don't receive them. Don't help them in any way. Draw a firm line in the sand. Be valiant for truth. And at the same time, he's saying, this is the new commandment that you have. To love one another. Love one another. Christ has loved you. To love one another. This is not an easy combination to maintain. And we see in Ephesus, it wasn't an easy an easy combination to maintain. Valiant for truth and great heart at the same time. Truth and love. Now, if we think about Florida Coast Church, and we kind of hold this, this uh, measuring stick up to Florida Coast Church, I don't really know what to say because we're so new. And we're still kind of getting our bearings. Uh, and so I don't really know uh, what to say if we're, if we're strong on truth but lacking in love, if, if we're something like the Ephesian church or not. Um, but I do know that we are part of a theological tradition and a, uh, a church, a denomination, that typically has been very strong on truth. And uh, we have very high standards for the leaders of the church in terms of their preparation and their biblical learning and so on. And we, we are a, a church that emphasizes truth. And we should hear a commendation for that from Jesus. He's saying... Stay in the truth. Don't, don't turn aside at all. Good job. Stay firm. Don't turn aside to the left or to the right. The danger for those who have this tendency to emphasize truth, 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 is that we can be lacking in love. But these are not contradictory things. These are things that can and should and must go together. So what's the reputation that I want, and I think all of us want, uh, Florida Coast Church to have. Uh, when people think about Florida Coast Church, what would we like them to say about us? We'd like them to say, now that's a church that follows the Word of God. That's a church that doesn't turn aside to the right or to the left. That's a church that teaches it faithfully. That's a church that is founded on the rock and founded on the Word. And we'd also like them to say, that's a church that opens up their hearts and their wallets. That's a church that looks for the down and out. That's a church that looks for the the least and the lost and goes after them and, and shares whatever they might have. Because that's what love looks like. It's not just a, a loving kind of attitude. It's actually work. Look, look what Jesus says here when He calls them to repentance. He says, In verse 4 he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What works? Well, they were works of love that they had done at first. They were works of charity that they had done at first. And he's saying, do you remember that? Do you remember that when you you were giving of yourself for others? You were giving of your means for others. You were sacrificing yourself. Go back. Go back and do those things that you used to do. And he says, then, there's a, a warning that if they 
didn't do that. He said he would remove their lampstand. Verse um, 5, he says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the lampstand is what? The lampstand is the church. So what's he saying? He's saying, if, if you don't repent, good job following the truth. Amazing. You're stalwart. You're steadfast. Excellent. But if you don't go back to your first love, the works of love, then, then I'm going to take you out as a church. I'm going to remove you as a church. You're going to disappear. That's how important this was. You can't just say, oh, well, we're a church about truth. We don't do the love thing. Other churches do the love thing. We do the truth thing. No. He says, if you have truth, but you don't have love, I'm going to take your church away. Paul said something like that, right? If I have all discernment and know all mysteries, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And he said, if you don't go back to loving, that's what you're going to be. You're going to be nothing. This is not an idle threat. Some 4,000 churches, or maybe many more, but at least some 4,000 churches close in the United States every year. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why. It may be just demographics. It may be finances. But, but this is one possible reason why churches can close, why their lampstands can get taken away, because they haven't kept truth and love together. The final call in verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that's an interesting call because it should remind us of Jesus, how He taught the parables. When Jesus would teach parables, He would leave people saying, what? And Jesus would just leave them with that and He'd say, if you have an ear to hear, hear. And then He'd stop. So the ball was in their court. And that's what he's doing now. He's, he's, he's tossing the ball into our court. But notice how he does this. The Spirit is speaking to the churches, but he calls us individually to hear. Isn't that interesting? So uh, we can't beg off and say, well, that's, that's a message to the church. The church should deal with that. Well, if we're part of the church, we're being called individually to respond. He who has an ear, she who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Let her hear. So, how is a church going to repent? A church is going to repent by individuals repenting. How is a church going to respond to the Word of God? It's going to be respond to the Word of God by, by individuals responding to the call. I'm amused, but also distressed. I haven't heard it here, by the way. I'm talking about other churches in another life, in other places where people will come to the pastor and say, this church is whatever. You just fill in the blank. This church is not loving, let's say. Or this church is not friendly. Or this church is not generous, or whatever. And then I always want to just stop and say, excuse me, aren't you part of this church? <laughs> so if you're saying, this church is not loving, what are you saying? I'm not loving. So, hey, thanks for admitting that. Thanks for telling me that you're going to get on this and you're going to work at improving this church and being more loving because you've recognized that you're not loving enough and you're going to make this a more loving church by being a more loving person yourself. Excellent. Thank you for telling me that. But that's usually not how it's brought to me. It's brought to me like, 
I'm over here and I'm okay, but this church needs some work. So I'm telling you, Pastor, get on it. Go tell them to get on it. But what does Jesus say? He who has ears, she who has ears. Listen. Listen and respond. Oh, by the way, there's something fascinating here. These words, as we saw last week, are given by God to Jesus, who sends them through the angel to John to the churches. But it says here, Jesus is speaking, Jesus is speaking, but it says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Fascinating. So now we find that the Word of God is the Word of Jesus, is the Word of the Spirit. And so we find a a very well-developed theology about who God is, that He is three persons, and He is one God. Now, the final promise is this. To the one, once again, it's individual. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This should sound familiar because it draws an image from the Old Testament, from the very first chapters of the Old Testament. There was a tree in the garden, and it was the tree of life. And they, the humans, after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was forbidden them. Then God said, Let's not let them get to the tree of life because if they they eat of the tree of life, then they will live forever. And so they were banished from the garden. They had no access to the tree of life. But Jesus here says, that tree of life from which you have been banished, all of humanity's existence since that sin, you've you've been kicked out. That tree of life will now become accessible to you again, to the one who conquers, to the one who responds to the one who repents, to the one who keeps going in truth and in love until the end. And this tree of life shows up again, and it shows up at the very end of the book of Revelation in the last chapter. Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. They will seek His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be No more. So the tree says it's on both sides of the river now. I'm not sure how that works. It's going to be on both sides of the river and it's going to give its fruit every every month of the year. Would you like to eat of that fruit, he's saying? To the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, to the one who continues in faith and in love will have access to that, that tree of life. Now why will we have access to that tree of life? Because we've done such a good job? of holding to the truth, or we've been so good at loving? No, we already saw the answer, didn't we? We have access to the tree of life because the Prince of Life became the propitiation for our sins. And He asks us to come, invites us to come, and to eat without cost. But what will be the the evidence in our lives that we have come, that we have partaken of the love of God and the propitiation for our sins? What will How will that show itself in our lives? It will show itself in our lives 
through our steadfast holding to the truth until the end and our practice of love for our neighbor. Well, did the church at Ephesus heed Jesus' warning? Um, Apparently so. Apparently so because we know from church history that there were two councils that took place in the 400s. And uh, one took place in 431. It became one of the ecumenical councils, one of the councils recognized by all the church, the church at Ephesus. Uh, I mean, the council at Ephesus, 431. And then there was another council uh, that was not ratified. In fact, they, uh, they called it the Robber Synod because uh, they didn't ratify that one. It was an illegitimate council. But that took place also in Ephesus in 449. So what do we know? The church was founded in the 50s. And now we're talking about the 450s, and the church was still going. Some people point out the fact that the church is not alive today, but that may or may not be the church's fault. The city's not alive today. Ephesus disappeared. Remember I told you it was a coastal city? It's not a coastal city anymore. Silt filled up the basin, and it got removed from the coast, which ruined it as a city, plus there were invasions and so on. So it may or may not have been that church's fault. But we can say, at least for some 400 years, the church continued. I would be very pleased if Florida Coast Church lasted 400 years. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? How is Florida Coast Church going to last 40 years, or 400 years, or 4,000 years, by each generation and each participant thereof, holding to the truth and practicing love. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this call to believe the truth and to practice love. And we're just getting our footing as a church, Lord, and You've blessed us with many things. And, Lord, we want to be a church of truth and a church of love. Lord, I pray that we would be known for those two things, that we're valiant for truth and we have great hearts toward our neighbor. Would You do that for us, O God, that we might do that for our neighbor and that the name of Jesus might be lifted up. And, Lord, we would love for this church to be around for many generations. And we take that responsibility in our generation to hear the word that the Spirit is speaking to the churches. Amen.